When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. Our guest on this episode needs no introduction for listeners in the UK. Ed Miliband was the leader of the Labour Party between 2010 and 2015, and is now the Shadow Secretary for Climate Change and for Business. He makes one of my favourite podcasts, Reasons to be Cheerful, where he and Jeff Lloyd meet thinkers with big, ambitious, progressive ideas. And he's now written a book exploring some of the most exciting. It's called Go Big. He joined us for a live stream conversation about it with Hannah McInnes. I, I, I was mentioning Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. And I know that in a way it was from that that this book came. What was, was it entirely spurred on? What, what differentiates Go Big, How to Fix Our World from what you've been discovering and learning through the years of doing the podcast? Well, I suppose, candidly, both the podcast and the book came out of defeat. Um, I was the leader of the Labour Party, um, and most of the people watching will know, uh, I lost the 2015 general election. And I wanted to carry on promoting ideas, which I tried to do as leader. And Jeff Lloyd came to me a couple of years after that election. And Jeff had interviewed me during the election campaign and said, look, there must be good ideas out there, big ideas about how things could be better. Why don't we do this a podcast? And the podcast sort of was the kind of start. And then I suppose the book is a natural evolution. It's not simply a book of the podcast. What does a book do that a podcast can't? I suppose a podcast is 45 minutes of a discussion of an issue. A book was in a way a challenge to me to think, okay, so here are 20 big ideas. How achievable are they? How would you do them? What are the challenges? What are the objections people might have? So I think it is a sort of hopefully a deeper look at the kind of ideas that we feature on the podcast. And then I suppose, secondly, it's trying to paint a picture a broader picture of what needs to change about our society, what needs to change economically, what needs to change in terms of what we value. Do we just value GDP, gross domestic product? What what is it that we measure? How do we measure success in our society? What do we put first? And then how do we make our democracy work? And And then the last part of the book is about how people can be part of change. So it's hopefully a more rounded argument about the condition of our society and how it needs to change. And above all, as the title sort of suggests, or rather simple title suggests, it's an argument that when you look at all the things that have happened in our country, whether it's Brexit or the financial crisis, or what COVID illustrated about the inequalities in our society, that we're a country that that does need big change if we're going to solve many many of the issues that we face. Now, we're going to spend most of our conversation talking about those big ideas and and going through them, but just um, taking a very basic step back and something you do talk about in your introduction, 
which is that you also wanted to show with that podcast. And I think it comes through in, in your introduction to the book. You said that part of it was to show you had a personality and to cheer yourself up. And you say that in those sort of dark days, you occasionally ventured on Twitter and people were encouraged, surprised, not to say flabbergasted, that I seem to have a personality. So just before we go into the book, I wonder why you think that was. Why I think I've got a personality. Uh, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's something about frontline politics, particularly at the level of being the leader, that for me anyway, it, it meant you sort of, too often I felt I was sort of treading on eggshells. I think it's partly true for a Labour leader because they think, you know, what is the Daily Mail going to pick up on what I say? And I think there was something quite constraining about that. And I think in a way, I let it be too much of a constraint. The, the, the first time actually that this, my personality revealed itself to the Twitterverse was, I was, it was a few months after the election and I was walking down uh, the escalators at Hoban Tube and a guy passed me and shouted, there's Nick Clegg. And so I tweeted, I uh, just walked down the open tube and uh, the guy shouted, not, uh, there's Nick Clegg, not exactly, uh, dot, 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 not exactly. Um, anyway, so people thought, gosh, you know, maybe he's he's sort of got more personality than we credit him for. But look, I think there is something interesting about what, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're both podcasters. It's almost like the podcast is the ultimate kind of antidote to politics or, 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 or sort of it's the opposite to what a political interview is like. A podcast is like, hopefully, a relaxed conversation in your front room. Politics can often feel like a, well, like a gotcha situation. And I think it's partly, look, maybe the more successful politicians than me are those who, who don't make it look like they're in a gotcha situation. Um, and, and don't, and, and I suppose it's about caution and it's about constraint and, that's, and I suppose what I'm saying is some of it is inevitable with the the higher up you get in politics and some of it is self-imposed. I think it's it's interesting and it's worth exploring that because it, it's it's part of the reason it's so difficult perhaps to to go big to, to fix our world comes back to the fact that you know people have people don't believe in politicians people are skeptical of politicians people see that atmosphere that you describe and you ask in the book this the your words that we believe again that politics can rise to the biggest challenges that we face and we're at a stage where i think many people hear that and sigh yeah i mean it's interesting because the climate crisis which is the way i start the book that is the reason i'm still in frontline politics above all because i think you know, we literally have a few years to make a difference, as David Attenborough says, for the next few thousand years. What we do in the coming years is absolutely consequential, not just for now, but for the future. And in a way, it is the ultimate illustration of Go Big, because the scale of change we need, cutting global emissions by 50% this decade to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is what the scientists tell us is necessary, is an absolutely massive, massive challenge. And, you know, the idea that you could sort of tinker around the edges to do that is obviously wrong. So, you know, I still think politics can go, go big. And I actually think the public are sort of ahead of politics on this. I think the public think so many people, if I think about my constituency, Doncaster North, it voted by a big majority for Brexit. 
that wasn't my position. Why did it vote for, why did people vote for Brexit? Because they wanted change, because they said, look, what's been delivered so far, we, we just don't feel this economy is working for us. Now, there'll be some people watching this podcast, maybe a lot of people who think, well, Brexit wasn't the answer to that. In a way, that's not the point here. The point here is people were saying things need to change. And I, tell you, I make this sort of observation, which is, I'm very struck. I've obviously faced David Cameron as Tory leader. And, you know, we've had uh, two prime ministers since. Now we're now on to, on to Boris Johnson. I think Johnson's solutions are completely inadequate to the scale of the crisis we face. He doesn't do what Cameron said there wasn't this crisis. There wasn't this, this need for big change. Johnson's argument is different. <laughs> Johnson's argument is, yeah, I agree, there is a need for change and we can deliver it. And I think so I think I think there's something interesting here about people across politics recognizing that there are some really pretty big things to fix about the way our country works. Yeah, I mean, you say COVID, you mentioned Brexit. Do those make it the sort of moment to be seized to go big in terms of the timing? Is it it's not essentially or necessarily always the time? But now there is a moment that you feel that this is the time to, to see the time to, to put these ideas into practice. Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when I wrote the book originally, it was in the middle of COVID. And I don't say we're completely through it, but we're obviously at a different phase. I suppose I'm struck how the conversation during COVID was, we've got to really build something better. I mean, the government said the way they put it was build back better. Different people did it in different ways. If I'm frank with you, I worry that that is being lost a bit from the conversation. <laughs> you know, the, the notion that the, the extent to which people suffered during this pandemic and that the extent to which it taught us lessons about the way our society was run, pay of key workers and all that. I think for all of politics, there's a challenge to to remember what the collective experience that we've been through and say, yes, we do, as you said, we do have to, at this moment, sort of build something better and different. And I, I'm very struck, you know, about, uh, and this is not uh, going to sound like a part example, but it isn't, the 1945 Labour government, and I suspect some of this would have been true, whoever would have been in government then, the will of the population was so much... And I'm not saying the pandemic is like the war because you can't compare the two, but was we've got to build something. But even though we face really adverse circumstances, we've got to build something better out of this. And so I think it, that is a really important thing that we have to hang on to. And not just because of the pandemic, but because, as I say, when you have the number of crises we've faced as a country just in a matter of a decade, it's got to tell you something about so what you need to do, and that's even before you get to, as I say, the climate crisis. Let's turn to, I mean, there's so many things to discuss, and we won't probably get through all the big ideas, and I, I wish we could, but people uh, will be able to read about them, of course, in the book. But you, you do begin with climate, and the main point, the main difficulty in terms of fixing our world when it comes to climate is the fact that it feels like it's in the realm of the elite still it's getting better but to have the time and the ability to worry about climate because as you say how how can you unite the worries uh, of uh, the end of the world and things like that with worries about the end of the week those are your words 
so I just wonder how, you know, how you think you can, those two things can meet, because it comes up time and time again, that this issue of solving climate change is something that only a few people have the time or the luxury to, to put on their agenda. Or, or the money, or the money, some people yeah. would say. Uh, look, you're completely right, Hannah, that that is, I think, the central challenge. And I talk in this chapter about this phrase, the Green New Deal, that might sound like a slogan. I actually think it's more than a slogan because it's this idea that in rising to the to solving the climate crisis, we're not just saying, let's avoid this epic disaster which awaits future generations. We're saying, as we do that, we can build a better world. Now, what do I mean by that? That sounds rather general. It means that as we change the way we heat our homes, you know, we've got tens of millions of homes to change the way we heat them as we move away from, you know, gas boilers and all of that. Well, are we really going to say we're going to move from a world where we, that was the situation with fuel poverty and all of that and reproduce that with heat pumps or however we heat at home? Well, surely not. Surely we've got to use this moment to say, well, let's not move from the unjust high carbon world to the unjust zero carbon world. Let's, as we insulate homes and create jobs, as we install alternative energy systems, we must be able to tackle this long-standing problem we've had of fuel poverty. As we create jobs, manufacturing wind, wind turbines, electric vehicles, we must be able to solve some of the problems of low pay. As we get away from petrol and diesel cars and move to electric cars and other forms of public transport, we can tackle the issue of air pollution. So the way we unite the concerns of the end of the week with the end of the world is to say, actually, in the world of the people who care about climate, we're not just about saying, let's let's tackle the climate issue. We're about saying we can build a better world in that process. And I, I genuinely believe that. And I say this within the green movement. The test is not how much are people going to suffer as we tackle climate change? The test is how can we create better lives for people as we tackle the climate crisis? Yeah. When you talk there, you, you, you're talking in um, sort of quite positive, positive terms. That These are things that we can gain. And I was really struck in the book by, you know, this, I think you call the chapter the end of the world, don't you? Yeah. Apocalyptic language, you, you end up by saying, which really interests me, you know, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare, he, ha- he said, I had a dream. And a, and a big part of getting everybody on board, which I think is to be recognised still by a lot of people, is perhaps to make it more of a message of hope and perhaps less of a message of fear and disaster, which sometimes make people run in the other direction. I, I do agree with you about this. I had this conversation, funnily enough, and this isn't meant to be a name drop, with Greta Thunberg in an event I was doing, and she was saying, look, fine, but you've got to be truth-telling as well. And I think she's right about that. But 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 then just to take your point, because I think it is really interesting, we did a podcast the other week about mental health anxiety around climate change. and. The thing that really uh, stuck with me was somebody saying, you know, you've got to give people a sense of agency. And and I think that is right. And it's not false agency. It's the sense of, look, there is something, you know, what does agency mean here? Agency means, I think, there is cause for hope and you can be part of it. And I think that is, I I think that is so important because, because otherwise it's like, there's this massive problem. We can't really... You know, we can't deal with what China does and you know, the US and everything. You know, what can we really do? Well, 
we can do quite a lot and we can do something better, you know, as part of our contribution to, to, to tackling the climate crisis, but as something more than that. Um, and, I, and I think that um, I think that's really important. Well, agency is perhaps the most important thing throughout your entire book and th- throughout everything. It's the question that always comes up because you say we must give people agency where climate is concerned, but there really is a pervasive sense of of hopelessness from an individual perspective. When you think, can we really do anything if governments don't act? If big business and fossil fuel companies are driven by profit, it, it, it's very easy to feel helpless, particularly where climate's involved. And, and generally, when we're looking at solutions to fix the world, as you say it, without political will and, and business most often, we wonder what we can actually do. I mean, that's definitely true. And that's definitely, that's definitely right. So in the last part of the book, I talk about this um, divestment movement, divestment from fossil fuels. And it is so interesting, this, because it began as a just a one American college based on a Swarthmore college about a guy they met who was sort of talking to them about what the fossil fuel companies were doing. And it's become this trillions of dollar movement. And what's so interesting about this movement which was about divesting, you know, getting investments from U.S. colleges and institutions out of fossil fuels and into renewables. What's so interesting about this movement is, you know, this is, a, this is I think, true of a lot of change. It starts out on, this is not my phrase, it starts out on the margins and ends up in the mainstream. It looks like a sort of slightly wacky cause a decade ago, frankly, and then you've got people like Mark Carney, former uh, governor of the Bank of England, who's been championing, you know, these issues about where is money invested? Is it invested in green? Is it invested in fossil fuels and all of that? So and, and the reason I say that is because, you know, I think people can, not just on climate, but, but you're right on climate. People can feel a sense of hopelessness. And I, and I think there's two things I'd say to that. One is movements can have massive effects. The people climate strikers, I think, definitely have had an effect. That's the first thing. Secondly, maybe three things. Secondly, of course, we can do things in our own lives. But maybe thirdly and importantly, sometimes people are told, well, you know, do your own thing in your own life. And that is important. And one shouldn't in any way negate the importance of that. But it is also, and Greta says this very well, the, the work you do putting pressure on business, putting pressure on governments is also fantastically important. In other words, it's not just, I think sometimes maybe if we just say to people, well, look, if you just do the right thing in your own life, then we'll tackle the problem. People say, well, that's not really true, as you say, because if governments do the wrong thing, it's not going to, my you know, good behaviour is not going to really do the thing in the end. And I think that's why you've got to do, but you've got to talk about both things. And that's the the talk about divestment is such it is a, a very empowering um, part of the book. Lots of examples that you give where people have made on a personal level as groups and, and communities, you know, re- really have got together and made a difference. But I mean, perhaps if we just come back to business, which stands in the way a lot. Businesses, again, your words, you say are so powerful in shaping our world. So we cannot renew the social contract, which you need to perhaps and describe people without discussing their role, but that's what underpins all of this. And there are reasons for optimism where business is concerned. I mean, perhaps you could mention B Corp, for example, which yeah, yeah. you're familiar with. But 
underlying most business, big business, is is profit uh, and not necessarily what's best for all of us in terms of our, our welfare and, and climate and what we might now see as a, a better life. Well, look, that you see, profit does not necessarily conflict with purpose. And I think that's what the... Um, that that's what this B Corps and this whole movement is saying. It's saying, look, you can be profitable, you can be good for people, and you can be good for the planet. And I think it is so interesting to me this because when I was leader of the Labour Party, I made a relatively controversial speech it's now 12, 11 years ago about predators and producers, predatory businesses, and 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 for the productive businesses. And you know, I don't want to say I was right. That's that's not really the point of this. I think the point really is to say that. I see business leading this drive to do the right thing. Business saying, well, look, actually, our license to operate is about paying the living wage, doing right by our employees, doing right by the planet. Now, some of that, some people watching this will say, oh, well, some of that's greenwashed. Some of it is greenwashed, but a lot of it isn't. You know, there are a lot of CEOs and others who are also really worried about the climate crisis and who say, you know, I do have to look my kids in the eye and say I'm doing the right thing. Now, is that enough on its own? No. Government has obviously got to do the right thing. I'm very struck about, you know, some of the oil and gas companies. You know, no doubt lots of the CEOs of the oil and gas companies also care about the climate crisis. But, you know, they're saying, well, I've got my shareholders. My shareholders are, are, are who I'm answerable to. They're saying I've got to keep going in the in the way I've gone before, that's why government has an important role. But but I think it's I think it's really important to to sort of say that this movement for good business, business that does right by um, what some people call the triple bottom line, people, um, planet and profit, it is I think it's grown massively, and it's very you know, I mean. I know we're not talking particularly about contemporary politics at this moment, you know, day-to-day stuff, but you know, I think the reaction to the P&O decision, I think, is really, really interesting because people are outraged, rightly, about it. Across the House of Commons, I was talking to Hugh Merriman, who's the chair of, conservative chair of the Transport Committee today, I just happened to meet him in the coffee queue, and, you know, he rightly gave an incredibly hard time to both government and to the company. And, you know, I know, I'm sure there are sort of business people right across the country who are saying, you know, not in our name. We would never do something like that. It's interesting. You do something much more positive than I think many people feel. And and B Corp is, a, I, I feel, still a very niche thing that is a struggle for most businesses who even want it to get, um, let alone people who who it's just not in their interest, but they don't feel they need it. But you you sound more optimistic than than perhaps. Well, maybe. there is an interesting. I mean, there's an interesting thing for your uh, listeners, viewers, is that the um, there is this campaign for something called the Better Business Act to essentially enshrine some of the B Corp principles in the way our company law operates. Section one seven two, to be really nerdy, as you would expect of me, of the two thousand and six Companies Act is who are you answerable to? Is your primary duty to your shareholders? Or have you got an equal duty to your employees, your customers, and so on? And that is a really interesting movement. Yeah, and, and um, people can read further about that act. It's actually a fascinating uh, part of part of the book. As I said, I feel like we could probably spend an hour on each chapter. Maybe now I wish I'd sort of pitched for that, but obviously you're a busy man, and we have busy busy viewers and, and, and how-to subscribers too. But 
another place where we we sort of might despair that we um, don't have agency and something that really needs changing without business, without government, is family values, which you write about in the book. COVID, of course, brought very sharply into focus how far we have to go. You know, women we know are still the primary child care. You know, the burden is on them. And we know that that, that needs to change. But, you know, as you write about that still policies haven't caught up and societal norms where that's concerned are so ingrained, it, it feels very hard to imagine that, you know, we can ever really get out of it. Although Scandinavian countries, as ever, <laughs> seem to yeah, have they, they, they really do. It's, it's, it's funny you should say that because um, the Icelandic Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir, who I have got to know quite well because of a conference I went to a few years ago, I was in London a couple of weeks back, and she was telling me now about, and I think this is going to make your viewers, listeners sort of slightly kind of amazed, uh, about their parental leave system. So they have six months reserved for each partner. And so that means that fathers get six months. Now, the, the, the kicker in this is it's not just six months that you can transfer between you, but four and a half months of the six month is reserved for the father um, or the mother. So in other words, you can't take less than that. I mean, it's called use it or lose it paternity leave. And I talk about it quite a lot in the book. And it's so interesting, this use it or lose it concept, because we have in this country a system called shared parental leave. Now, that sounds good. And to be fair to Nick Clay, who introduced it in the coalition, it was with the right intentions. But what it basically means is the mother gets the leave and she can transfer some of it to the father. Now, it's very badly paid. The concept is essentially it's a mother's leave and she can transfer it if she wants to her partner or the father or father, the father of the child. Um, um, and and the, the, the problem with it is it's completely unsuccessful, 2% two, 2 take up or something like that. And it's so interesting, this, Hannah, because... It is a bit of a problem of British politics, which is that we don't we don't lift our eyes enough to look at other countries. The Scandinavians had exactly this system in the 1970s when Nick Clegg and I were about three, and it didn't work in Scandinavia either for exactly the same reasons, cultural, financial, etc. And so they said, well, okay, well, that system's not working. We're going to have this reserved leave for fathers as well as reserved leave for mothers. And it has led to a massive change, still not equality, but a massive change in the amount of leave taken, but not surprisingly, by fathers uh, and mothers. Iceland, I think, is the world leader for the share taken by fathers. It's still only in the 30s in terms of percentage, but it's like way up on where we are. And th there's a lot of studies on this saying it's the thing that makes the biggest difference of a policy tool to bonding with kids, share of housework, gender pay gaps, all of those things. Because obviously the gender pay gap really starts to hit in when children are born. So I think there is something, and, and this is part of a nexus in Scandinavia of uh, childcare, universal childcare and all that. But I think it is, I, I think it's so important this because it, and you know, if you go around the streets of Scandinavia, you see fathers pushing prams. But the, the thing is, and again, how do we overcome this quickly when the re one of the main reasons that is, is because the people making policies, again, as you point out in the book, in those countries are much more predominantly women with an interest in those policies. 
But outlook, what's interesting here is that our parliament has changed, not enough, but our parliament has changed in terms of the proportion of, of women in, in parliament. Um, and but policy still lags. I mean, interestingly, Theresa May, just at the end of her time as prime minister, became a champion of this uh, use it or lose it, father's leave. Um, and so... I sort of think this, I think it's interesting this, I think this is coming, this change. You know how you can sometimes think, well, and I feel this about some of the policies in this book, not about all of them. I feel this uh, strongly about this, you know, it's sort of a matter of time, this. We have two weeks paid paternity leave at the moment. It's obviously derisory. Um, and this is going to change, you know, this is going to change. Because, and also just for people tuning in, you know, this is what fathers want. Father, you know, the, they did a survey in different countries, and it was fathers in the UK who were right at the top of saying it was financial barriers that were stopping them spending more time with their babies. And you know, I okay, I was leader of the Labour Party. I was climate change secretary when my first son was born, and then leader of the Labour Party when my uh, second son was born. And you know, I took the two weeks, but that was basically that was basically it. I think it's I think it's really, really sort of important, isn't it? And it, it, it shapes your society. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. I'm going to, because the time is rattling on. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking for too long, sorry. No, no, not at all. I, I, I just want to take a step back out again. So, I mean, we've, 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 we've talked about climate, a bit about business, a bit about inequality, all these various things. Um, you know, if we have time, te tech giants, so, so many different things, the book housing, lots of ideas about how we can improve society. But I'm just interested in, you mentioned the timing. Of, of COVID as a perhaps a time to sort of, you know, we, we, maybe we won't say build back better, but whatever it might be. But recent events in the last few weeks, we're obviously now faced, you know, you, you had a number of things while you were writing that you were leading up to it that were sort of making the world a, a tricky place to say the least. And now we have a war in Ukraine. How does that influence your thinking about Go Big? How would you change perhaps your mind if you were writing it now? I mean, often these big world events make everything you're writing about, they, they fall down the agenda because everybody's focused now on a huge, um, staggeringly worrying situation. So I think it's a couple of things. It's a really important question. I mean, my book didn't bite off foreign policy because I thought going big on domestic policy was sort of quite sufficient, uh, was sufficiently ambitious. But look, it obviously... You know, I mean, most obviously, the outrageous Russian invasion of Ukraine reinforces the sense that we need to be an outward-looking country working with our allies. 
And I think it's completely right that the government has worked with our allies on the toughest possible economic sanctions. And I think that, I think, I think what's interesting about this is that when you have a, an, an economically connected world, as we do much more than 30, 40 years ago, the economic threat and, and response, the correct economic response can be powerful. Now let's see how powerful it is, but I think it's really, really, it's so important that we do everything we can on the, on the kind of economic response to this, to, to stand with the Ukrainian people. But then, but then the second thing, which, which is relevant to the book, is it has pitched the whole issue of energy security back on the agenda very directly. And I, I'm not trying to say that this just reinforces what I said in the book, because obviously I did, it wasn't written with, what, what with, with this happening in mind. But I think it is, it is interesting in this sense, and I've been talking about this in the last few weeks in my job, that it reinforces the case, actually, from moving away from fossil fuels. Because you know, what is it that petrostates, dictators, and so on rely on? It's that the kind of, for reasons that I, about our economically connected world, that energy policy is a geopolitical weapon. And reliance on fossil fuels is a geopolitical weapon, and it's definitely a geopolitical weapon for Putin. It, you know, it's, it's no question it's part of his calculation. He doesn't just fund his war, uh, Russian oil and gas, but he has calculated, I think, that Europe's reliance on Russians, Russian oil and gas, particularly Europe, a bit less so us, means that he has much more power to act militarily. And so I think... What is the response to that? What's the right? What's the right response? Is actually what the climate. You know, people, some people might say, "Well, there's energy security or tackling the climate crisis." No, it's both together. Actually, <laughs> having your own sources of renewable power, nuclear power, energy efficiency, all of those things, is the best kind of energy security response as well as the best climate response. Which again is the thread that runs through everything you say, which is that it is ultimately does all come back to to climate. I think that's right. And I think, you know, what's so interesting is that I think we sort of un still underestimate the extent to which this transition is going to reshape, is going to sort of reshape our society. And we can either reshape it in a good way or we can sort of let it reshape us. And, you know, we're going to have to adapt to this climate crisis one way or the other. And we can either leave it to our kids, grandkids and so on to deal with the consequences. There's a really, just talking of being nerdy, there's a really interesting report from the Office of Budget Responsibility, the government's fiscal watchdog, saying delaying acting on the climate crisis will store up much greater costs in the future. So I think you're right to say so much does come back to climate and how we move quickly enough. By the way, I don't want to suggest I'm just looking through rose into spectacles. I think there is a real danger that we'll draw the wrong lessons from the climate crisis. Uh, for, for, sorry, from the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and that we'll say we need to take a pause on the climate thing and go back to fossil fuels, go back to gas, go back to all of that. And I think that is the wrong response. There's a few, quite a few questions from the audience, as I knew they would be coming in. I just want, um, I said at the beginning, we, we like very much to figure out ways to feel like we have agency, that we can create change. We talked about divestment. We've talked about a few things. But I, I feel like citizens' assemblies are a really interesting part of that, that you talk about 
you know, people might not be familiar with them. So perhaps you could explain in your far more articulate words what they were, people, uh, what they're about. Actually, on How to Academy, we had a long chat with Rory Stewart a few years ago, who was a, a big proponent of citizens' assemblies. If they are this great idea that people with with good, you know, qualifications say are a good idea, why aren't we seeing them more? Because they sound like a pretty good idea to me. They just don't seem to be um, be around very much. So this is interesting, these citizens' assemblies. So basically, what are citizens' assemblies? I'll try and explain them as best I can. I mean, they're basically you bring together a randomly selected but representative sample of the population to discuss and deliberate on key issues. So there was a climate assembly, UK climate assembly, organised by select committees of parliament um, a a year or two ago. Famously in Ireland, before the referendums on both abortion and equal marriage, they had citizens' assemblies. And it's interesting this, because these citizens' assemblies were sort of trying to get the politicians off the hook, I think, because the politicians thought these are really difficult issues to handle in Ireland. And let's refer them to citizens' assembly. And slightly to the surprise of the politicians, I think, they both came out for change. On the abortion laws that Ireland had, there were very restrictive abortion laws and on equal marriage, in favour of equal marriage. And it sort of paved the way for uh, the referendums. And and then, you know, they uh, are being used around the UK to get people's lo- local people's views on climate. And, and actually, I know what you mean about are they, why aren't they used more? They use more than they were. I mean, they have become much more popular and, and used all around the world. I talk in the book about how, how much they're used, but I'm sure they could still be used more. Now, what can they do in our democracy? I think it is partly about how you deepen your you deepen our democracy, because we do want to have more local politicians with power. I talk about devolution in the book. I, I do want votes at 16. But I think representative democracy on its own, I mean, representative democracy is still the foundation, on its own is probably not enough for people now. You know, people in local areas want to have a say on how you tackle climate change in an area, big local issues. And I think citizens' assemblies are one way of doing this. And I've said, for example, that alongside the UK Climate Change Committee, we should have a standing citizens' assembly I would want to do this if I was the Secretary of State. Because, you know, if we're going to get people to install heat pumps, if we're going to get people to insulate their homes, to switch to electric cars, the notion that you can sort of do it with a kind of the kind of sham consultations that government has without really engaging with people, I think it's just, it's sort of, it sort of is a bit Whitehall knows best, you know, ministers know best. And I don't. I think that people just don't. I think people don't want that anymore. Now, not everybody wants to engage. There's a famous quote, which turns out to be, by the way, a piece of fake news from Oscar Wilde, which is, "The problem with socialism is it takes too many evenings." Which I always thought was a great quote, and I traced this back, and I actually found I won't name him, but I found the rather famous person who used it, and I said to him, "Where does this quote come from?" And he said, "Well, I was paraphrasing, type of thing." Uh, uh, this seems to happen with quotes so very regularly. Fake news, who they're from. But you know what's so interesting about this is it does, this is a whole other story, but you know, it's, it's like days before the internet, this thing got produced in the, it got written in the 1960s and then it sort of gradually found itself kind of going round and getting reproduced and I kept trying to find where it came from anyway. But it's a good, but, but the idea is right, not everybody wants to engage, go to a citizens' assembly and so on. But 
I say this in the book, just I quote somebody at the end of the book, um, at the end of the chapter on citizens' assemblies who was at the climate assembly, and he says, I felt like I'd won the lottery. He got a letter out of the blue saying, would you part of this? And he thought, people are going to listen to me. And I think this is really important, Hannah, which is people feel that politics shuts them out. People feel that people like me shut them out, make decisions, don't really engage. And I think that this is about politics letting people in. And I think that is so, and it's not only done through citizens' assemblies, but I think it is really important. But people do feel that politics shuts them out. And we, we touched on that at the beginning a bit. I think a lot of people feel that as well because they're exasperated by party politics. And you say this book isn't party political. You, you say it's at least not Yabu sucks party political. But this tribalism and the division that is in politics and that seeps down into all areas of society is surely one of the biggest barriers to fixing the world and, and putting all big ideas into practice. Because even if people all felt they were a good idea, we're in a place where no one would ever admit that or be seen to be on the side of, of someone who they were on the opposite side to on a party political. I mean, look, it is interesting, this, isn't it? I, 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 I sort of... I wrestle a bit with this because, um, you know, look, I'd make a sort of distinction between valid ideological differences. You know, I desperately want a Labour government and so on. You expect me to say that, but I'm not saying that I do for, for a whole range of reasons. Valid ideological differences about the way our society should be run and the Yabu sucks stuff of Westminster politics. And I think that the Yabu sucks stuff my appetite for it is just much less than it was, I'll be honest with you, because I think it is very off-putting for the public. You know, I, I, I sometimes feel about Prime Minister's questions. I, I don't, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I don't like going to Prime Minister's questions. And this is partly a sort of PTSD thing for me. Like, you know, because I did 120 of these against David Cameron, I really don't like to go. And in fact, I'll let you into a secret, which is Keir Starmer got, was diagnosed with covid 15 minutes before Prime Minister's questions in uh, October, and I ended up doing it at 15 minutes notice, and um, which was kind of slightly scary. And I remember I said to my office at 11.30, I'm not sure I'm going to go to PMQs. I really hate going to PMQs. And they were saying, well, you should probably go. And I said, oh, I should probably go. Anyway, I went and then I would actually had to do it. But, you know, I find it, I find it kind of, yeah, it's just not my... And, and, and now, why do I say that? It's partly I just don't like the sort of yaboo. But yeah, I th- look, I think I think it is partly our system. I mean, I'll be honest. You know, I'm a, I'm an electoral reformer. I think our first past the post system is a you know there is this isn't to say well, let's all be nice to each other and we all agree because we don't right. And so that just to say that is just like will be wrong. But there's a lot. There's a there's definitely an element to all of it which is pretty off-putting for the public and and sometimes off-putting for politicians too. Ed, there's some good, interesting questions coming in. Um, but on a climate, climate front, um, there is what about the role of the Global South, many of whom have been urging us to acknowledge our stewardship of our planet, but we've ignored them because it would stop our consumerist way of life. Uh, they have many natural ways to address climate change. It was really important. You know, I talk in the book about the Copenhagen summit of 2009, which was rather unsuccessful, where I was at the UK representative. And 
I really felt in retrospect that the shadow of inequality does hang over these summits. And I think it's true of the Glasgow COP26 last year as well, where, frankly, developing countries felt just they did not have their issues addressed. You know, there is this concept in the climate world of of, of loss and damage, and that is basically... The, the, the havoc that the climate crisis is wreaking on a lot of countries, and it is developing countries who are hit hardest and worst, and they are saying, we want an acknowledgement of loss and damage. And how is loss and how are we going to be, how are we going to be helped with the loss and the costs of loss and damage? And so, so I think the questioner is absolutely right. And I'm afraid this is still an unaddressed, this is still a significantly unaddressed issue. And, and we will never tackle the crisis unless we do that. I think the other thing I would say, though, there's former President Nasheed of the Maldives, somebody I've talked to quite a bit about this, and he, he actually, David Cameron and I came together, believe it or not, in advance of COP26 to kind of for one time only to do an event together with President Nasheed, former President Nasheed. And, you know, his point is, actually, when you think about renewables, solar power, all of those things, if developing countries get the help, and middle-income countries get the help, they can leapfrog the old path of development, which is the high-carbon fossil fuels path with a low, with a zero-carbon path. And I think that I genuinely think that is possible. You know, th- this is the other thing, Hannah, to give you and and people tuning in optimism. I'm not simply making the climate case on the ground, isn't it the right ethical thing to do? It's the economic thing to do. What is the cheapest source of power in our country? not coal, but onshore wind. That is the cheapest source of power. And, you know, onshore wind turbines and solar power too. So I think there is a real, um, there is a real chance here. You know, I said earlier, we've got to cut emissions by 50% to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. And we're not on track to do that this decade in any way. But I think there's a, there's a sense that once the stone starts rolling down the hill, it could really gather momentum because it becomes the cheaper option. People aren't doing it because it's the ethical option necessarily. They're doing it because it's the cheaper option. You know, what's not to like about the cheaper option of solar power or wind power or, or, or whatever? So, you know, yes, I think the questioner is right. We've got big obligations to the global south. There is also opportunities, I think, to get the global south help to be on a different development path. I mean, the cheaper option, if not in the in the in the sort of short term, in the long term, the kind of climate friendly option is always the cheaper option. It's just people don't see the hidden costs, which is very frustrating for for, for you know when you hear people come on and talk about how ex- when you hear people talk about how expensive these things are, they just don't take into consideration. You know, you're right. I mean, look, it's much cheaper to charge up an electric car, not just at the moment, but particularly true at the moment, than it is a petrol or diesel car. <laughs> I mean, miles cheaper. Now, you've got to help people with the upfront cost of the electric car, but that's, that's the sort of opportunity here. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Um, a slightly diff- a very different question, but I'm going to ask it because I think it's interesting to get a sense um, of, of this uh, perhaps personality um, that you talk of at the beginning of the book. Um, an anonymous attend- attendee says, what would you say to your 11-year-old self? Oh, good question. Don't be so serious. I think I was too... You know, I, I, I came from a... Um family of two, my mom and dad, both Jewish refugees. And we didn't talk much about the Holocaust. My, my mom lost her dad in the, um, in the Holocaust. And my, my dad came here in 1940 with his dad, was fleeing from the Nazis from Belgium. And I think there was quite a sense of responsibility in the household. I don't mean to say that it was sort of Marx for breakfast or Hegel for lunch or anything, but a sort of sense that you had a responsibility to leave the world a better place than you found it. Now that's important. And I'm not saying that isn't important. And, and it's not that my parents were sort of grim or serious or whatever, but I, I think about it with my, my kids are actually 11 and 12. So it's sort of irrelevant. I think it's important to be a child as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, I want, it's nice that they care about the world around them and so on, but they can also be childish. Now, I was childish, so I don't want to overdo this, but I think it's sort of have fun, enjoy yourself and don't, you know, there's plenty of time to worry about the world. Great question. Joanna says, and it's not so much a question, but it's interesting because we didn't talk about uh, these things sort of necessarily much. She says we need two things, proportional representation and regulations on media rags which have been gaslighting the nation for decades, i.e., in her opinion, Brexit. Um, it is a question, sorry, I come to it, she comes to it. Do you see opposition working together to get it? If not, the UK is heading to a very dark place. I mean, we've touched on some of those things, but great question. Yeah, these are hard, these are hard questions. I, I, I'm for, uh, I'm an electoral reformer, so I agree on that. I mean, the whole media landscape is changing so much. I think we may have discussed this last in our last time, but, you know, in a sense, the press in Britain is always an issue for the left. I worry more about, as the whole Leveson thing showed, the intrusion into the lives of ordinary people and, and all of that. But I think, you know, the clearly what's the, 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 the even bigger thing now is Facebook, fake news, all of that, and the way that gets spread. And, you know, that is... And I talk, I, you know, the tech stuff is some of that. We talked about it last time. That's a, one of the hardest things to work out how you deal with some of these issues. But I think it is so striking that we've gone in Britain as a, a country where we have no TV advertising of politics, massively restrictions to a total free-for-all when it comes to internet advertising, all of that around politics. To, a to, essentially a total free-for-all. And so I think I do worry about about all of that and the way that misinformation can get spread. And I don't I look, there are just very, very, very difficult to work out how you answer this. Um, No, misinformation, not just misinformation, but hate and, you know, anti-vax conspiracy theories and all of that. And so I think, you know, I I, maybe it's for my next book, how you solve this. But but I think so I think that's, you know, I think that's really, really important in this conversation. But interestingly, um, you know, just quickly on the t- on the tech front, because you do write about that in the book, we have huge tech giants of t- monopolising everything, 
and governments aren't acting. So again, it's that question of where is the where is our agency in this? Because our, our privacy, um, you know, is is very much There's a risk. lot more the government could do on this. I mean, there is a lot more. Funnily enough, the the, the CMA, the Competition Markets Authority, has been sort of quite forward in saying we need to do more. We need legislation to allow us to do more. And if you look at what Joe Biden is doing in the US. He is trying to embrace some of the things I talk about in the book, some of the people I talk about in the book, this woman, Lena Khan, who wrote this thing about the tech trust, you know, antitrust question, is now part, I think, of the either in the administration or around the administration. So I think, yeah, I think this is really important because it's in a way it's a sort of it's a, these beer moths have massive control over our lives and massive power. And it does need to be held much more accountable. In the book, you say we've all fallen asleep at the wheel. A government aside, do you, do you see uh, a, a way, you know, a way that we can have agency in terms of uh, tackling tech giants and monopolies? I mean, you know, there's people doing their own thing around Facebook and other things. It's hard. It's, it's hard. I think I think it's one of these things where people can have some impact, but really, it is about government has got to. I think just government, you know, tech moves quickly and government is just very, very slow. And, you know, I say in the book that I think there would be hundreds of um, mergers and takeovers where these companies have acquired more and more power and they've never been called. None of them were called in, basically. And and, and, and people have said, actually, the UK could have had an impact. The EU could have had an impact in calling them in and they didn't call them in. And so that's one of the things that's got to change so that these companies don't just kind of gobble up more and more companies to become more and more powerful, which I think is an incredible danger. Um, I'm going to sneak in this last question. Do you think we should educate? You talk about this in the book and it's interesting. We haven't talked too much about young young people, how important they are, but do you think we should educate on these issues at a younger age and a bigger focus on global citizenship? Definitely. Definitely. And you know, alongside votes at 16, it's giving, you know, school is not just about passing exams. It is also about educating citizens uh, of the future. And I think, you know, that whole question of people's civic responsibility makes it sound really kind of dull. But I think giving people a sense that they can have an effect on the world around them. There's this great campaign. This is an optimistic note to perhaps end on. There's this great campaign around climate education in schools led by young people. And it's actually produced some change from government. We, we're supporting a private member's bill, a bill in the House of Commons around this. The government is saying is making some positive noises about it. You know, Young people saying that we want to be educated as part of our curriculum about climate crisis, you know, not just in a little silo here, but to make it an integrated part of the curriculum, because it's so important to our world and the world we're growing up in. And so and that's just one element of this. But I think I completely because, you know, the most depressing thing in politics, actually, when you knock on people's doors is not people saying I'll vote for the other side. Yeah, that, that is depressing. But it's when people say you're all the same, you know, it makes no difference. And 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 we need to fight against that. And that starts young, definitely. Well, as you've said yourself, we'll end on the positive note of the future generations. But as I said at the start, well, not nearly enough time to tackle so many big issues, but I hope we've, we've done our best. And thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Thank you for your brilliant questions. I hope we got through Um, as many as possible. And Ed, thank you very much indeed um, for joining us this evening. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Anna. Thanks so much. This week's show starred Ed Miliband and was presented by Hannah McInnes. 
It was produced by Luke Naylapero and the series is made by me, Vas Christodoulou, and Dana Outcult. Our editor is John Doughty. If you loved the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. If you hated it, fear not. In our archive, we have episodes on literally everything from the origins of American Chinatowns to the meaning of life. So you are all but guaranteed to find something you'll love. You can find it at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>